Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Hope you've uh, had a good week, blessed week in the Lord. Um, looking forward again to uh, opening the Word of Life this morning as we turn uh, to the book of Revelation. And uh, as we turn to the book of Revelation or the Revelation, I would like to just stress that it is one revelation. It is not the book of revelations, even though there are multiple things that are revealed in it. It is one revelation and uh, it is an amazing time. And I love uh, being able to teach it. I love being able to share it. I feel like it's a calling on my life. And uh, I love it because most of all, it absolutely confirms my faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. I mean, every single time I read it, I, my, I'm invigorated, I am strengthened, I, I believe more and more with the apocalypse, the uncovering, the unveiling, the revealing of Yeshua that I have staked my claim for eternity in the right place. And I'm thankful for that. Now, last week, we uh, took time to look at the apocalypse, which is the very first word of the, of the text, the apocalypse, which means the unveiling or the revealing. And we took time to kind of look at some of what that was. And there was one point that I didn't make that I kind of want to share with you today uh, in, in this opening introduction. We talked about what the apocalypse is, but I want to just stress what the apocalypse is not. The apocalypse is not a parody of some genre of literature. Now, I know that every uh, educated scholar that ever sees this or hears me say this is just going to bust a blood vessel. Because every time you turn to a commentary or you listen to a revelation teacher, inevitably they will talk to you about, well, this is a type of literature. There is a type of literature, a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And I do not deny that. My problem with that is that God didn't look down at the revelation that he had given us so far with the historical narratives of the gospel, the unveiling, the unfolding history of the church and all the epistles and the letters of the apostles to the body of Christ. He didn't sit there and suddenly say, you know what? This, it's just missing something, you know? And hey, guys, what's hot these days? Well, Lord, apocalyptic literature. I mean, it's all the rage, all these crazy images. Folks, this is the apocalypse, not that. And if the apocalypse is just a, a type of genre, then it's almost like saying those books are equal in significance to this one. And it's kind of a, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now, again, I know there is that they have created this genre of apocalyptic literature, but God forbid that we would think that our God borrows from humans. I sat in a Bible college class, and let me tell you, you know, sometimes I'll reference people that uh, I have a great deal of respect for, but, you know, when people talk about me, there's always a yeah, but somewhere. To know me is to know the yeah, but, all right? I mean, there's something about me that is flawed. There's something about me that's imperfect. Get over it, all right? There's, very, there's only one book on the earth that I can say, absolutely, I affirm everything in this book. It's the Word of God. 
But I, I say that because I don't say this to demean this, this professor. I really loved him. He had a great love and passion for the Word of God. He had a great love and passion for the Hebraic context of Scripture in Israel. And we just shared a whole bunch of things that we both loved. And one day I was sitting there in class, and I heard him make this statement. That God had borrowed the altar system from the pagans because that's all the Israelites knew. And I just about felt my head explode off my body. God does not borrow from anybody. He doesn't parody what the world does. He doesn't imitate what the world does. He doesn't try to fit the mold of what the world does. And if you think you can take this revelation, which is unmatched, unparalleled, unprecedented, and shove it into some kind of genre, I feel sorry for you. Because you don't know where this book came from. Because if you did, you would know it is utterly unique in its origin, its majesty. All right, I've made, I've, I've made enough of my point to get myself in trouble. So I'll move on. It's not a parody. It's a prophecy. And that's how we are supposed to receive it. And as I said last week, to receive the prophecy, you don't have to mitigate or negate the prophetic element to receive the personal application. In prophecy, they're one and the same. And so part of my role is to defend the prophecy, to let it be what it is. So last week, we kind of looked at the apocalypse, what it is and what it's not. Today, and I falsely uh, shared with some people last week that I was going to get into the timing of when this revelation was actually given. I'm not going to be able to get there today because I just ran into too much other stuff uh, and what we are going to look at today. So we'll be look next week we're going to be looking at the appointed time of the revelation and the anointed one of the revelation. We'll finish out chapter 20 with that, or chapter 20, uh, uh, chapter 1. But today I want us to look at the apostle of the revelation. I want us to connect with the one God chose, Yeshua chose, to connect with this prophecy. I think there's some things we can learn from his experience that are going to be relevant and valid to us. So I want to begin this morning by reading uh, from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and we're going to go down through verse 8, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to read the verse we're actually going to exegete this morning. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us into a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Will you pray with me? Abba, Father, we come before you in the name of of Yeshua the Messiah. We come before you this morning, Father, in the name of the one who is the faithful witness, who was the truth, the, re the revealer of who you are. We come before you, Father, 
in the name of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, and ask you to make these moments that we share together in this place and any future moments where people might be watching this later online or in their homes at this very moment, make this a sanctified place and time that we might see the purpose of your revelation. Reveal yourself to us today, I pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. So today we're just, we're really going to just focus on John. And uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John begins to write his own words. And he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at the apostle of the Revelation, remember in verse 2 it says, And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now notice that this message was given to, and it's intended for, those who are bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said it before a couple of weeks ago, I'll say it again. You know, years ago, well, years ago I, when I first took interest in the book of Revelation, I heard a gentleman say, the book of Revelation is not hard to understand, it's hard to believe. If you'll believe it, you'll understand it. Now, I don't know if he was actually the first person to say that, but it always stuck with me, and I liked it. And I think it kind of relates to this idea of being a bondservant. If we do not come to the prophecy with the attitude of humility, recognizing who we are in relationship to the master, if we come wanting to be the ones we're going to say what's going to happen, we're going to say how it's going to be, then this revelation is going to be worthless to us. We have to come to it with the same attitude as the apostle of the Revelation who understood he was a servant of the one who was being revealed. Like all the other books of the Bible, one of the first questions we need to ask is, well, who was the author? It is most widely accepted that John the Apostle is the author of this revelation, and by author I mean, you know, the one who received it and wrote it. However, there are some from early on in Christianity who disputed this, because of perceived differences in the Greek and style of John's gospel and his epistle. And they can kind of make a convincing uh, case, except for one thing. Yeshua himself twice makes sure to give us key descriptions of the author so that we can understand where it's coming from. He did this in two ways. First, he describes the author as the one who testified to the word of God. My friends, how can you read the gospel of John and not know that's the same John? What does he say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There is no gospel that testifies to that aspect of the word of God more than the gospel of John. It's the whole thesis. It's the whole premise of that book. And Jesus says... The one who did that is doing this. Secondly, he said, he testified to the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the Gospel of John says. It is a testimony. Now, John's Gospel is unique for a couple reasons. Not because of how it's different, you know, in terms of the chronology, but it's different in these two ways. One, it's a testimony. It is a formal bearing witness to a fact. Why is that? 
Because that is exactly how God used the prophets of old. Remember last week, Amos chapter 3, verse 7? Surely I do nothing without first telling my servant the prophets. Why? Why does God not do anything, especially an act of judgment, without first telling his servant the prophets? Because before the judge renders judgment, he first hears and presents the evidence for the validity and justness, justness of his judgment. John's gospel centers around seven signs of the Messiah that are publicly displayed, publicly revealed, and then gives us a record of the rejection of Jesus in spite of those signs by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is very, very significant because they never deny the signs. They never deny that they have seen something that, is, that, that manifests beyond the realm of normal human experience. And yet, in spite of what God revealed through Jesus, and by the way, Jesus says every one of those miraculous signs was the Father working through him. Remember what we said last week? A man is not a false messiah if he claims to save Israel. He's a false messiah if he claims to save Israel without God. Remember that quote from the Yerushalami, or that reference. John's gospel is a testimony. Now, I want you to begin to add a definition to that word. Because when something is a testimony, when you testify, what are you doing? You are prophesying. He testified... And to the word of God, and then it says, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is a prophecy. Why do I say that? Listen to what John records in John chapter 19, verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours, and, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What did the angel just say to John? True testimony is Jesus' prophecy. Prophets don't testify. They don't prophesy from their own spirit. They prophesy from the spirit that is given them, and that spirit is the spirit of Yeshua, either upon them or within them. John testified about the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. The angel showing John these things identified John in Revelation chapter 22, and I didn't write it down, so we'll look at it next week. But he identified John as being among the, his brothers, the prophets. I mean, when you talk about trying to figure out who the author is, there is no book that gives you more internal evidence declaring who the author is more than the book of Revelation. Now, if John holds the testimony of Jesus, he is, an apostle, he, he is an apostle, he is a sent one, but he is also a prophet, and the testimony he is now called to record is a prophecy. You're saying, Brent, why are you so passionate about this? Because one of the ways we become those who hold and keep the prophecy, who guard it and protect it as the blessing instructs, is by not letting someone convince us that it's less than what it claims to be. Well, does it teach a moral truth? Yes. Does it teach a future uh, event? Yes. Why is it that the body of Christ tries, divides right down the middle between those two things? Some people say, well, most of the prophecy of the minor prophets was really just a call to repent. It was really a scathing denunciation of behavior. 
Yeah. Followed by a prophetic declaration of the punishment that was coming upon them because of that behavior. That's prophecy. The predictive element was the thing that was supposed to stir them to repentance. Because I don't want none of that. I don't want that happening on me. We are coming, we are in an age where there are so many things happening. I mean, as Chris referenced in his prayer, just the events of this week. I mean, the internet is a buzz. I mean, <laughs> everybody's talking. And by the way, let me just throw this out. No one sits on the throne in this world for 70 years unless God is in the mix. He raises up and he tears down. For whatever her flaws, her good, her... I don't know all of... She had a testimony of believing in Jesus for which I am thankful for, but she stayed on that throne for 70 years for one reason. He allowed it and permitted it. So what comes after? I don't know. Tune in. (laughs) We'll all find out. Jesus' choice of John to receive and record this prophetic testimony is completely in line with how the Apostle John was used in the recording of his testimony gospel. Yeshua returns to the identification of John not only as the Apostle and author of the Revelation, but as his divinely chosen prophet. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which in Jesus was on an island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now what we're going to look at real quickly is three descriptions of John that John gives us that help us receive the Revelation. We're going to understand the context of the author is going to help us know how to be the audience. All right? So let's look at this. Number one, John, descri- John is a prophet of paradigm. Now, a paradigm is simply a model or a pattern. And he's not the first prophet of paradigm that we've seen in the Bible. Do you remember, to illustrate it, do you remember Hosea? <laughs> Hosea is the prophet that, that really makes you rethink any desire in your heart to become a prophet. Go marry a faithless woman or a wife of harlotry. Go marry somebody that you know is going to cheat on you. And when she does, as, as you take this faithless bride to yourself and she cheats on you, what I call you to do for her in bringing her back is exactly what I'm going to do with my children Israel and my people. That's a prophet of paradigm, where the life of the prophet actually becomes a model, a, a, a paradigm, a, a, a manifestation of the message he's trying to teach. Ezekiel is another one who uh, should caution us about rushing to want the title of prophet. Ezekiel is told to make a scale model of Jerusalem with sticks and rocks and then attack it. And then when the people are walking by on their way to temple... And they see the man of God sitting on the ground. That kind of sounded like Star Wars, but I'm, he probably had different sound effects. But here's this man of God, and what's he doing? It looks like he's playing with, with sticks and toys. And what happens when they walk by? This is what the Lord God says. This is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Remember when the Lord told him to take him and strap him and tie him down on one side? And every day he laid there, God was going to do the same thing, the same type of punishment to Israel for every day he laid there. 
what was it, like 390 days the first time? And he got up, and he said, oh, thank goodness that's over. And God says, not so fast, Bubba, on the other side. For every day you lay there, strip down, strap down, tie down, this is what I'm going to do to Judah. Who wants to be a prophet? That's a prophet of paradigm. You know, honestly, the apostle Paul was a prophet of paradigm. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees who was sent to take the gospel to the Gentiles. His life becomes a pattern of the message he preaches. There's a second description of John. He is a prophet in exile. John writes that he came to be on the island called Patmos. Now, hey, buddy. Patmos, they're a blessing. Patmos is, man, it's a hard thing to nail down. You can search all over the internet and come up with all sorts of different definitions. But the one that I've seen, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, trying to nail it down with a scholarly you know, nail is a little difficult. But nonetheless, the, traditionally, people understand the word Patmos to mean mortal. Well, what is mortal? Well, we are human mortals because we live and we die. Mortality means you can die. So in one sense, he's being exiled to this island that has the idea of mortality, exiled alone, and there he receives a revelation, a revelation, about the end of humanity's exile that is coming at the end of human mortality. John is going to live out the lesson. So why is the context the exile? Because this is the context from the very beginning. Therefore, it's the context of the end. Humanity's story after creation is the story of our exile from paradise. We have all been in exile since we left Eden. This is not only the context of revelation, it is the context of redemption, that the redemption that's being revealed. Now, I, I want to connect for you four Hebrew words that will kind of help you understand this. The first word is the Hebrew word galah, and uh, two scriptures help us see the connection between revelation and redemption. Eli the priest has just died having learned that the Philistines have defeated Israel and captured the Ark of the Covenant. His two sons have just died in battle, but Eli learns of the ark's capture. He falls backward off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. His daughter-in-law is pregnant at the time and about to give birth, and listen to what she names the child. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 20 and 22. And about that time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. The word in the verse 22 for departed is galah. Now listen to it again in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Saul, saying, 
In this verse, the same word is used, only this time, the word that was translated in the first passage from Samuel that I read, which was translated as departed, sent away, is now being translated as revealed. Same Hebrew word, same Hebrew root. This word is translated as departed, uh, had revealed or told, removed, gone into captivity, uncovered, appeared, discovered, or carried away. The same three-letter Hebrew root forms the words that we translate as departure of being sent into exile and captivity is the same root we get the word for revelation. So what's the relationship? You see, the exile sets the context, the picture of what redemption really is all about. Our exile is a stage upon which and through which God reveals his plan to redeem us. What is redemption? Come home. Come out of the exile. This is why Abraham is the father of our faith. It's why he turns from the east and begins to go west by faith. He's the first man who is called to leave the world, to leave the exile and come home by faith, trusting God's word and his promises. In the exile, we are carried away by and into the world. Oh, please hear this. Let me say it again. In the exile, we are carried away by the world and into the world. But in the revelation, we are carried home by the revelation of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The first word is galah or galut, and it has the idea of revelation and dispersion or exile. The second word is geulah, and it is spelled almost exactly the same way as the first except for the addition of the letter aleph. This word is translated as redemption. Isn't that interesting? The same word that is translated as being carried away or sent into exile as revelation is also used as the word for redemption, and they're all built on the same root. Why? Because all three concepts are connected. They are the context of everything we read about in Scripture. Humanity has gone into exile because of our sin. The glory with which we are created has left because we died in our sin. But God is revealing how he intends to bring us home and return us from the exile. That is what the redemption actually is. Being brought back from the exile. How is he going to accomplish all this? Through the Redeemer. It would, there was a reason why three of the seven Moedim, three of the seven feasts, were walking feasts. What were they designed to teach us? How to walk by faith. How to return to Jerusalem. How to come home to the presence of God. That's what we're going to be celebrating at Rosh Hashanah. That's what we celebrate at Yom Kippur. That's what we celebrate at Sukkot, Tabernacles. That God has made a way to call us out of the exile. He has revealed that way to redeem us and call us home. Well, I promised you four words, but the next two I'm going to do real quickly. The third word is galut, and it means the dispersion. The fourth word is the word hit galut, and it means the revelation, the uncovering of God's plan of redemption to redeem those from the exile that trust him. This is not only the message of the prophecy. Are you ready for this? If you go and pick up a modern Hebrew translation of the New Testament, guess what the name of the book is? 
keep your loot. So, what is, is it about the exile? Yep. Is it about revelation? Uh-huh. Is it about redemption? Spot on. Why? Because that's the context. And that's the very context God calls his bondservant to go walk out and live. This prophecy was given to the Apostle John so that it would be prophesied to all who live in the diaspora, in the exile of the world, that we would tell them there's a way to come home. Trust the word and start walking. It says he sent and communicated it to the Apostle John so that it would be sent to us. And that's literally what an apostle is, a sent one. Sent to deliver the testimony for our benefit. Well, let's move on to the third description of the apostle of the Revelation. We've seen that he is a prophet of paradigm. We've seen that he's a prophet in exile. But the next one really hits home. He is the, pro- he is the prophetic partaker of the Revelation. Meaning John is going to not only record the revelation, he's going to live it in all of its manifestations as exile and redemption. But John describes himself as having fellowship, intimate firsthand understanding of what it means because he is also a partaker of it. He's not writing a book like, hey guys, it's been great. The the beginning has been so easy, so wonderful. But when you guys get to the end, wow, it stinks to be you. No. Who who wants to receive a revelation, even though it's going to strengthen us, some of that strength is going to come from some hard pressing. I don't want someone sitting in an ivory tower who has never experienced tribulation lecturing me on tribulation. No, Brent, don't talk politics. Don't talk politics. Move on. Okay. Amazing how many people can look right into a camera and tell us how we should live while they're getting on their private jet. Sorry, it came out. John describes himself as a partaker of three things with us. Now, I want you to hear that. With us. Which means John, what, how John is about to describe himself, he assumes you and I are in that same category. Listen to how he describes it. He is a fellow partaker in the pressing of the world against us. Now, the Greek word we translate, this is the Greek word we translate as tribulation, and it has its origin the idea of suffering that is caused by great constriction and compression, pressure, you know, mounting down upon us. That's kind of the origin of the word. The New Testament overwhelmingly points to our sharing the sufferings of the Messiah as one of our greatest privileges. And it never, ever represents that suffering as us being victims. It always represents that suffering as our path to victory and the essential path toward the strengthening of our faith with intimacy with Yeshua, which is only experienced by those who will partake of what he partook of for us. Amen? That's why I say you have to come to this revelation with the the humility of a bondservant. 
And, and you say, well, I'm not there yet. Well, neither were the disciples. No, Jesus, they're, they're not going to touch you. We'll fight. We'll, you know, don't go. These things must come to pass. There, there's a necessity. There's a value. To, there's, there's a reason for them. James writes, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot I've been in a messianic environment. Jacob writes, I, lo I love doing Bible studies where I ask people, turn with me to the book of Jacob. And they're like, okay. Wait, what? <laughs> James, Jacob, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Interesting. A letter to people in exile. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is some, Jacob is saying there's something about this tribulation, this constriction, this pressure that comes against us that ultimately moves us deeper into intimacy with the Messiah and closer to his image being fulfilled and completed in us. Do you remember the very first message we talked about this, the, the, the purpose of the sevens? Anytime you start talking about the sevens in the Bible, you're talking about something that comes to completion. Our completion is in Christ. And notice that James sends his letters to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. It is because of this dispersion, this exile, that they are suffering the trials and tribulations, the pressing of the world. But notice how James connects exile and tribulation exactly as the revelation does. That that pressing, that tribulation perfects, equips, completes us. We are shown we are shown the pressing of the world not to cause us to see ourselves as victims, but victors, as overcomers of the world because of the revelation of the word of God in us. Please hear me. We aren't just called to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ's victory over the world. We are called to be the revelation of Jesus Christ's victory over the world. Amen? Amen? This isn't something you read about, something that's supposed to be happening to somebody else. This is the revelation of the manifestation of Jesus and how he wants to fill you now. And if the specific days of tribulation occur in your lifetime, so be it. But I've had plenty of tribulation already. And while I'm not fond of it, I have to admit, and when I look back, that it was not the good times that shaped me, molded me, and caused me to stand up. It was when the world was pressing me down, and I had nothing left but to call on the one who could cause me to stand blameless with great joy in his presence. Can I confess something? I don't like that plan. My flesh, Lord, can't we all just run around like superheroes? You know, I like that. But sometimes when we are the most pressed, we are the most blessed. Because that is when 
in our weakness, his power is made perfect. And how does it happen? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. What is testimony? Prophecy. By the word of their testimony, they loved not their lives even unto death. You see, we overcome tribulation of the world by the revelation of the word to us and within us about Yeshua, which becomes our testimony and becomes our witness and becomes our prophecy to the world. You weren't called just to listen to a prophecy. You were called to become one, to be a revelation, a manifestation of his goodness. Secondly, John also describes himself as a fellow partaker of the power of the kingdom presence within us. Even in the dispersion and exile, we are still citizens of a higher kingdom. A kingdom, uh, John describes, that we have tasted. The writer of Hebrews, in warning us not to fall away, uh, reminds us that we have all tasted and partaken. Hebrews 6, uh, verse 4 and 5, we have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the power of the ages to come. Notice the terminology related to the idea of eating, which is always related to fellowship. You know, there's a reason why we eat every time we get together. Your table is a place of intimacy. It's a place of fellowship. We have tasted, we have partaken, we have sat at the table of the Lord. And both ideas of eating and fellowship are pictures of being a partaker of the kingdom. The writer of Hebrews says that we have partaken and tasted not only of the good word of God, but also in the powers of the age to come. That's a very Hebraic term, and for sure he had the idea of the olam haba, the, the next world to come. And he says, we've already tasted it. Well, how in the world can I taste what has not yet come? Because I have tasted of the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in my life. I have tasted of his goodness. I have tasted of his word. And I have tasted of his power. If I'm a bondservant. Because if I'm going through this life, living my life in selfishness, no power. Because power shows up to fill us to do righteousness, not to condone our selfishness. John says he's our brother in this. He's not just talking about himself. He's saying this is who you are and who I am. Number three, he describes himself as a partaker of the prophetic endurance of the saints the writer of Hebrews has something to say about this as well in a very f famous and favorite passage of many. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, perseverance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Maybe it's time to resurrect that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim as long as we keep looking in the light of his glory and grace. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Notice again, the partaking, the eating terminology. This time it contains also the idea of fellowship. Paul is talking about the prophetic endurance of the saints. Paul writes to... uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 10, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, had a purpose for doing it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, the same word purpose is used again in the context of perseverance in the face of suffering. You remember what we said about the purpose of God? Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is yet to come, saying, my purpose will stand. Paul wrote to Timothy and declared that God would fulfill his purpose in us. And he uses a Greek word, prothesis. It's the word we translate as purpose, prothesis. I love God's word. In four other places in the Bible, in Matthew 12.4, Mark 2.26, Luke 6.4, Hebrews 9.2, the same Greek word, prothesis, isn't translated as purpose. It is translated as the bread of the temple of, of the table of showbread. It's the Greek word that is used in the gospels when the showbread, when the when the table is there in Hebrew, lechem, lechem hapanim, the bread of the face or the presence. So how can prothesis be translated in one place as purpose and in another place as the table of showbread? The bridge is understanding that the bread and the table of showbread were purposely placed before the Lord. The the, the bridge is the placement of the bread. So when the word is used to mean purpose, it means that which has been set before God, that which is established to be done. Church, please hear me. God's purpose is to be fulfilled in us, which means God's revelation is to be fulfilled in us, not just around us. We are the ones who are to be set before him, to stand in his presence face to face. Please hear this. If Yeshua is within us and the revelation, then the revelation is about us. Because the revelation is about all that he is and all that he is doing, not just in the world, but in the lives of the people he intends to sit with forever and place before the Father. This revelation just isn't just for us, it is about us. 
David knew this when he penned those prophetic truths. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will sit at the table in his presence with fellowship and intimacy because I fulfilled his purpose. I actually, I let him fulfill his purpose in me. By the way, who got to eat from the table of showbread? The priest. He has made us to be what? Kingdom of priests. Who have the privilege of eating the bread of the presence. Knowing where we will stand. Knowing where we will sit. Man, I love God's word. We're not just the recipients of this prophecy. We're the benefactors of this prophecy because it reveals how God's purpose is going to be fulfilled in us. We are partakers of the fellowship of his sufferings. That's not victim. That's victory. We are partakers of power of his kingdom presence within us. Jesus described his ministry as declaring Malkut HaShemaim, the kingdom of God is at hand. The power of God is present for you. We are partakers of the prophetic perseverance and endurance of the saints, saints, those set apart to stand in his presence because the most important thing in our lives is for his purpose his presence to be revealed in us. One final thought. In AD 95, John was exiled by, we believe, the Roman Emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos. Though the context of his being sent there is exile, he never mentions it. Why? Because when Christ is in you and you are in the Messiah, then there must be an awareness that where you are is where he intends to use you regardless of how you got there. John says that he was on the island of Patmos. He didn't say, because the big mean Roman emperor was being mean to me. He said, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, I know what it feels like to feel like you're on the outside, to feel like you're in a place of exile where you don't want to be. But please understand that your place of exile, your place of suffering, is the very place where he wants to expose the power of his presence the revelation of his goodness that we have tasted of his good word and the power that is ours if we believe. There is nothing discouraging about this because it defines us as the victors. So where are you in your life right now? What job, what relationship, what school, what environment do you find yourself in today? You may feel like you're in exile. 
But in truth, you are right where you need to be to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. You are there to let the word of God and the testimony of Jesus be revealed in, by, and through you for the glory of our creator. You are there to let the lion roar and reveal his goodness. Father, these are easy words to preach. They are not so easy to live. Father, as Ephraim comes to pronounce your blessing upon us, God, I pray that you will dismiss us into this world but keep our minds so focused, not on what we're going into, but what's already in us. Your good word, your testimony of Jesus. Make our lives a prophecy. Make us a revelation. Let the lion roar. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.